you're listening to the Black Side Fun. Uh, testing? Oh, hey, we're on. We're on. Testing? How's, about, how's my levels? Oh. Level. Okay. That's about, that's about good right there. And welcome to the show. We are at the Tacoma Musical Theater. It's actually called the Musical Playhouse. <laughs> And uh, welcome to the live show! Yay! This is the Black Side Files live show. So the tape is in, everyone. Let us begin. And I'll start us off with the news. Actually, first I want to say thank you to our sponsor, Love Pepper, for putting this up for us. This is awesome. I actually got a couple sponsors, so I'll go. I'll thank them throughout the whole show. Also, excuse me, I have a cold. Yes, in a post-COVID world, we there's still colds out there. It's not COVID, it's just a cold. Do you remember those? Yeah, I do too. So let's start off first with the news. <laughs> that was your, your cue to... Okay. So first, let's discuss uh, the, the Hubble discovery that just got announced uh, was yesterday. NASA has announced its mystery reveal that the record-breaking detection of a star 12.9 billion light-years away. Last week, the space agency hinted that it would be announcing a major discovery made by the Hubble Space Telescope that it promised could open up a whole new era of research. Now that announcement has finally been made, and it turns out the world-famous telescope has detected the most distant single star ever seen at a staggering distance of 12.9 billion light-years. Named WHLO137-LS, or Arendelle, meaning morning star or rising star, the star is 50 times the mass of the sun and also millions of times brighter. Wow. Previous record for most distant star observed was only 4 billion light years away. Normally observing a star as a distance as Arendelle would be impossible with today's telescopes, but in this case it was made possible thanks to the gravitational lensing effect of a large galaxy. Wow, that's crazy. So we found the, the f- most furthest star that we've ever seen in our history of humankind. And it's over 12 billion miles away, which means it's pretty early in the galactic timeline. And you think about it, 
when you see a star in the distance, you're actually seeing the past because it takes time for that light to reach us. Uh, it takes eight minutes just for our sun's light to hit us. So if you flick the light off, the, the sun off, click, sun off, click, sun on, it would take us eight minutes to see the sun pop off to pop back on. So just imagine with something that's 12 point billion light years away. That's that's 12 point billion years. Like that's that's the beginning of the universe. So that's a what we're seeing is the light emitting from something just right after the Big Bang. And again, I, I apologize. I'm nasally. Uh, I have a cold. It's either that or a sinus infection, which is not good. <laughs> but it's not COVID. Yay! <laughs> so that was the first part of the news. Hold on, let me wipe my nose. Just ripping on the microphone. So, second part of the news. Let's see, a Greek merchant mariner had UFO encounter in the Bermuda Triangle. Ooh, remember kids when when we were kids and the Bermuda Triangle was terrifying? <laughs> there are a few mysteries as endearing and as well known as the Bermuda Triangle. An expanse of ocean in the North Atlantic and that spans the area between Florida, Bermuda, and Puerto Rico. Over the years, the region has become synonymous with the unexplained disappearances of ships and airplanes, often with no trace of them or their crews ever being found. In a recent article, the Greek reporter dug up an account by a merchant mariner by the name of Spetsos, who experienced something very strange while passing through the area. His vessel has been traveling to Algiers from Porto Matanzas, Cuba, where it became apparent that the ship's speed was anomalously high despite the instruments reporting no such issues. A short time later, members of the crew began to experience strange symptoms, including the captain who complained that his body felt heavy and that he was unable to lift his arms. The electrician noted that the clock were all two hours out, out, out for no apparent reason, while the helmsman found himself unable to control the ship because of the, the gyroscope was broken. But the strangest of all was something that happened a little after 5 p.m., Spitzos recalled. The cook and I were playing backgammon in the smoking room. Really, there was eating ketchup packets in the <laughs> In, in the uh, bathroom. But suddenly we looked back and saw to the left of the ship, which would be the port, the northwest side, just a few miles away, a large white unidentified flying object in the sky. Then there appeared to be two smaller flying objects to the west of the large one, and indeed one of them was attached to it. Experiments of Americans, I assumed. I was sure that something strange was happening which, with time and how we were affected by the acceleration of the movement of UFOs. And there was no explanation given. Wow. Other weird news. Uh, again, I apologize for my nasaliness. I should have postponed this, but you're all just great people. I couldn't let this show go on without me being here. Uh, other news and uh, local news. Uh, apparently, someone got into a car accident on the Commons, right outside the Commons Bridge, uh, because they saw what they described as a UFO. A Tacoma man, age 37, uh, George Gretzberger. It's a hard name to pronounce. George Gretzberger claimed that he was just got off the bridge and was going towards exit 10 when he saw something in the sky that looked like a ring of light. Um, he says he was looking up and ran through the red light and T-boned someone. Luckily, it was a low-speed accident. He was going about 10 miles an hour, um, going left onto that, at that light on exit 10. And was just looking up and just, boop, 
right in the side of someone's car. Uh, he claimed that, yes, he was 100% at fault. But if anyone had any uh, details on that, let me know. Uh, it was very... Uh, I'm actually trying to find that guy to give, see if he can give me a, a description of what was going on. But yeah, he just claimed it would look like a like a donut in the sky of light. I was like, that's pretty uh, that's pretty intense. So today's episode is special. We're live. Um, I actually brought my book of giants, cannibals, and monsters. And I'm going to read from it, and then later on, I'll do a, what I decided to do since I have a cold and a, and also this is COVID area. Instead of passing around the microphone for a live Q and A, we decided to do something different. Because um, we're planning on doing a live Q&A, asking the audience, you know, participation, come up and ask questions and, uh, or tell me a story. But, you know, I also, I'm a sick myself. It's not COVID, but it's a cold, and no one wants a cold. And I didn't want to wear a mask uh, on stage because you would be muffled. And I've got my six-foot distance. Actually, I'm like 30 feet from all of you. Um, <laughs> I got staring at me. Yeah, yeah, 30 feet. Yeah, it's 30 feet, buddy. Um, so I did a write-in, you know, you write your questions and I'll answer them as best as I can. I'm not an expert, I'm just a radio host. <laughs> so the tape is in, let us begin, and I am going to talk about, I'm opening up my book right now, let's see, I'll, I'll, I'll see if what the audience wants to hear, you want to hear local stuff? Oh, no, no one? Oh, that means cheer. Cheer, everyone. I said cheer. <laughs> I'm kidding. Yeah, so let's... Uh, I'm going to... I'm gonna. Here we go. Y Yali the Giant. I just pulled to the random page. The y Yali the Giant. Here we go. Two women are spreading out Buckeye Nuts. To Limilimalia from Wakimi, the women have come up. He then, Yayali the giant, appears to east of them. While they're in the midst of spreading their buckeye nuts, he has reached the other side of the valley, shouting as he comes. Shouting, a monster is coming, says the two women. The elder of the women has a child with her. Give me the boy. Let me take him on my lap, says Yayali. He always cries. You mustn't try to take him on your lap, says the woman. So I found some wives for myself, says Yayali, and he roasts meat for them, human meat, meat from the pregnant women he's brought in from hunting. So he hunts pregnant women. This is Yali the Giant, a, uh, hold on, what was the uh, Central Sierra uh, myth? And it's about a man who, uh, if he finds you in the woods, he tries to kidnap pregnant women. It's pretty creepy. Um, the, the, these are the stories. Yali the man-eating giant. <laughs> um, I'll go back to that. When it was almost dark, the light near where the buckeye spread out, they have lit it. They are running away west of the women go where they live in the earth-covered house, away down the west where they were almost home. They hear him. Run! He's coming! Says the older one to her little sister. He's close behind. He almost catches them. As they come near home, they've tossed the baby to an old woman. They've gone inside the earth-covered house. Tarantulas closed the entrance with a rock, sealed it over with his 
nasal secretions. Give me the boy, says Yali to the old woman. He tossed the baby in his burden basket and brought him to Soweha. He threw the baby against a tree, and the baby was transformed into a tree. Some people went out hunting deer after he had left. Over on the other side of the hunters found Yayali, crushing pine cones with a rock to get pine nuts out. Well, here's our grandfather getting pine nuts, they said. Two of them climbed up after him and began throwing pine cones in his burden basket. The people are gathering brush together at the bottom while he's still up in the tree. He looks about wildly up there as he feels the load of pine cones growing heavy. The fire has blazed up the bottom of the tree and the people have climbed down. The Yali begins to cry out, In what direction am I to die? he says. To the west, they say. Point is, they point, point it out to him. To the west, you're to die, they say. He doesn't want to. Die to the south, they say. He doesn't want to. Die to the north, but that way he doesn't want to. Die to the east, and there it turns into obsidian. He turns into an airpoint rock over in the east. His dead body that turns into rock, they named it Kultko. The place that used to be his body, that is the place where he died. And that was an actual excerpt from some natives in the Great Basin. I'm going to bring out my other book. This is a live show, so <laughs> this is not how we do it normally. In a, a, we, we, I have notes, and I do a lot of research. But today, I wanted to do it live. Uh, it is a live show. Um, and I wanted to be spontaneous. You know, I didn't want to give you guys a uh, pre-recorded event. So today, let's. Uh, I'm gonna pick a random. Uh, the dead. No, no, not that one. <laughs> Here we go. I got some. I got something for you guys. Uh, not the Great Zimbabwe. Ooh, the Rock City of Petra. Petra is haunted. Uh, did you know this? Petra is haunted. My 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 wife's over there. Nodding her head at me like she knew. She didn't do. On a journey through the Orient in August 1812, the Swiss traveler Johann Ludwig Burkhardt. Oof, that is a mouthful. Hold on one second. Ugh. Again, this is a live show, so you're going to hear me blow my nose because of my cold. So, uh, Johann Ludwig Burkhardt heard from a pilgrim that there was a rock city nearby in disguise. He had himself led there by Bedouins inside a gorge nearly 4,000 feet long and up to 330 feet deep. He discovered the city of Petra, which most Europeans at the time had assumed was imaginary. Uh, for the people at home, uh, Petra is a rock city. Okay, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. That was actually Petra. Yes, that city they kind of enter into the the canyon. The oldest evidence indicates that this gorge, the Sikh, had already been settled during the Neolithic period. The origin of the city of Petra, which today lies within Jordan, go back as far as the Ed Edomites, the traditional enemies of Israel. 
who originally settled there. After they fell, the Nabataeans settled out of the site in the 3rd century BC under their control. Petra, or Sala, became one of the most important trade centers in the Near East. In the Near East. <laughs> Sorry, I hate it, I know. They were built by Nabataeans, or at least brought into their present form by them. Among these are the treasury, the Kazid al-Firan, which was originally a rock-cut tomb, the Roman theater, which seated 5,000 people, and the city center, which is a col colonnaded street. There are additional rock-cut tombs as well, leading some to suggest that Petra was initially founded as a dedicated burial place, and was only later expanded into a city. Sorry, I had to mute my mic there for you. Blow my nose. <laughs> Remember, everyone, I have a cold. So here's some myths and legends of Petra. Petra is a f crazy cool city. If you've never seen Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, I highly recommend watching it. The news of the rediscovery of the city Petra during the 19th century, although only Muslims were permitted to visit, gave rise to somewhat of macabre rumors. It was said that one might find the remains of crusaders inside the stone, as they were the last ones report of the city. Going even further were tales that portrayed the city in light of its supposed biblical origins, which tell of Moses arriving here and striking a well out of stone to provide water for the people. One 19th century rumor claimed that it was the water that was now poisoned, which of course only the Muslims could know in the 19th century. Petra's reputation as an eerie but fascinating city was enhanced by the stories told of atrocities visited upon Christians. Interest, interest was raised most of the, by all accounts of the treasures said to be lying deep in the silent underground passageways. And also it's believed that it's haunted uh, by the tombs. There's tombs there, so of course there's going to be ghosts and goblins and poltergeists. So, yeah, that's pretty interesting. In the year 106 AD, the Nebataeans were defeated by the Romans. The city lost its former importance when the, in, the, in the region when this new capital city of Bostra became part of the Roman Empire. After large sections of Petra were destroyed by earthquakes in 363 AD and 551 AD, more and more inhabitants moved away from the rock city. It is fairly certain by the time that the Arab conquest of the region of 663 AD the city was barely occupied. Following the Crusades of the Middle Ages, Petra fell to oblivion from a European perspective, becoming less real and more and more of a legend, until it was finally rediscovered. Excavations have taken place in Petra since the 1920s, and it's been open to tourists of all faiths since that time. Ooh, I hit the microphone. <laughs> um, yeah, the city of Petra is pretty cool because it's a whole city just built out of the rock face. If there's there's no like bringing in building structures, it was let's just build here. So uh, yeah, nope, levels, levels, levels. Thank you. Okay, right there sounds good. Sorry about that. 
Um, so now it leads into this story of um, uh, he, he was Sir Edgar Lincoln, and what he his story. This is where we get to the paranormal for the the show about the paranormal. <laughs> um, Edward Lincoln, he was an explorer. And him and three other, uh, it was his son, uh, Marcus Lincoln, and it was a, they, I forgot his, I don't think he was named in the report. Um, he was an assistant, uh, and they were doing some um, excavation in Petra. As they were going through one of the great halls, uh, they found these runes etched into the wall. Um, when the son, uh, uh, I forgot his name, <laughs> Um, he touched it, and when he touched it, he felt cold to, like, to his arm. Like, his arm became really cold and tingly. So then, the fa- the father, Edward Lincoln, Lincoln, sorry, um, still got my cold, <laughs> um, he, uh, ushered aid, because he believed, you know, he might have been struck with something, bit by something, as he was attending to his son Marcus's arm, he himself was like, "This is, you know, your, your arm is cold. This isn't right. There's some blood flow issue." He put his hand up to brace himself to help his son up. As he touched the runes himself, his arm started to get cold. The two men rushed outside and brought in the two other guys, uh, their two assistants. Um, they came in, they all touched the runes themselves to try to test this theory out that there's something's going on. All of their arms got really cold touching it, but after a few minutes, they re- their warmth returned their, to their arms. As they were in there, they decided, okay, we have to make camp. Um, they lit a fire, they, they had their little mules and stuff, so they made like a little tent and made camp right outside the exit. Through the night, each one of them kept hearing weird voices echoing through that empty great hall. But all they see is this black doorway going in because there's no light inside this great hall. And they're outside in this cavern. They kept hearing voices, you know, like, hey, As they're sitting there, they all start to like a little spooked. So Edgar bring Edward brings, I keep calling him Edgar. Edward brings out his his revolver because he's like, something's going to eat lead, probably going to be a ghost. So Edward goes up with this torch, and this is like 1925, 1935, around that area. Um, they were, I'll explain later, the reason why we don't know the exact date when this happened. So he goes inside. And as he goes inside, he's got his torch, he's back and forth trying to see what was making these noises. What he sees is this glowing skeleton king type thing where it looks like this rotting flesh, but he was glowing this white glow, almost ethereal. And he had this crown on his head and this rotting, flowing hair that looked like it was you know, falling out of this, what's left of this human, human-annoyed head was standing there staring at him. He unfortunately decided to, first thing he wanted to do, fired a few rounds, scared. I mean, I myself would be scared. It's probably all of you, and you have a gun. You're going to be like, ah, ghost. Um, 
He fired a few rounds. Noticing that the only damage that was done was the wall behind this spectral skeleton king. So he screamed, and he screamed for Marcus and the assistants to come in and help him, because he's just terrified. And this thing is just staring at him, tilting its head left and to the right, like trying to figure out who this man is. The other men rush in, and they all panic, because they see the skeleton king thing standing there, glowing, something from Lord of the Rings. The king thing slowly extends his finger, and he points at him. And he starts speaking in a tongue that he's in a language that he's never heard of. So the th- the four total men rush out of this building, and as they rush out, they're staring at this doorway, and they still see the glow from this ethereal spirit standing there at the end. And, and then they realize this was a throne room. This wasn't a great hall. This was a throne room where they were, where the king would sit, or the leader, or Dutch or Baron, or whatever this leader of this area was, would sit in this room, and the tapest- rotting tapestries, the the old campfire, was. it was because it was a place where they would have events for this king, or Baron, or leader. Um, so the four men grabbed the rifle that they had, the only other weapon that they had, and then, you know, the guy had about f- uh, four rounds left in his six-shooter revolver. Um, they all come rushing back into this room, paranoid, scared, and as they sit there, this glowing king walks over, and he places his hands on these runes, and then he slowly starts to be sucked into the runes, and the runes light up. like It's like his essence went onto these runes and they lit up. Edward walks over. Not Edgar. Edward. Walks over and just instinctively touches these runes. And immediately he says he felt like any of his... He was in his mid-40s. Immediately his bum knee felt great. His elbow stopped hurting he felt hydrated but his son marcus start feeling worse like he he was like i'm feeling like sick nauseous so edward tells him you know touch this rune so all the rest of the men start touching these runes and touching each rune or every time they touch the rune they all felt like all their ailments and stuff disappear. So the men the next morning pack up their stuff and they're like, we're, we're, we're going to show this to the world. Like this, this is basically a healing wall. So as they start walking their mules and their horses out of this cavern, they get out and they find a search party. The search party also looks a little off. Like, they look a little different. So the men, you know, go like, why was we were only gone for two days? We were reported supposed to be gone for four. Why was their search party sent out? And also, what's the getup seems a little off. Nothing crazy, but just like the outfits look a little different. What the lead leader of, the, of this um, search party 
tells him is that you guys have been gone for about 10 years. So they went in like 1924, believe the report says. 1924. They come out and it's 1934. And these men haven't aged a day. So they start freaking out because what, how do you, what, if someone said it, like you went into this theater and you came out 10 years later, but you've not aged, would you consider that, like, you know, you would want to be like, what's my wife? Where's my wife? Where's my kids? You know, where's my, what's my job? What happened? What's the world news? You know, and unfortunately, uh, it's 1934 now. So, there is something built here. They're at war. Another world war, which uh, Edgar Lincoln, or Edward Lincoln, um, he was in World War One. He was a World War One vet. And so to hear that, you know, England, he was an Englishman, is back at war. That's That's got to be heartbreaking. And then he finds out later that his wife uh, remarried, um... She thought, you know, he was dead, the search party. Uh, one of the strange things, though, is they, they were asking, why 10 years later did you send a search party? Comes to find out that they weren't the ones they were looking for. They said, we've already searched for you. We just chalked it off that you guys were dead or captured. There was another party that... Um, went missing in this same location just days prior. So now they have to help try to find out what's going on, where this other party is. As they say, hey, by the way, we found these runes on this wall that has healed us. Uh, we're completely healed of any ailments. Um, we're, it was, they say it's almost like a little uh, with, with a fountain of youth, but a rune of youth. So they bring in to the hall that they excavated, and as they bring in this search party, search party was like we've never we, we never had reports that this hall was excavated. This section was never explored. The Edward and his son Marcus and their crew were like, well, we were the ones supposed to report that this has been excavated, but apparently we've been gone for ten years. As they enter the hall, they find the missing party. And they report that they themselves saw this skeleton ethereal king. Now, you're thinking, like, so what? Ha what's their story is, well, they, they said um, the same thing, that they, they felt um, they saw this ethereal king... He put his hand on the wall um, and kind of was sucked into these runes, but they didn't touch the runes. Um, so Edward and his son Marcus and his crew told him, like, there's a price. You touch the rune, your ailments will be healed, but you will lose 10 years. Um, and they kind of figured out later that it wasn't 10 years of their life off. They just were basically teleported 10 years. Um, but that was his report. And that's what the story. And then so when they returned, they had to give this report to the Historical Society of England. 
And they didn't believe him. And who would? I mean, I would. Someone's like, yeah. So they were reported as uh, prisoners of war. Um, some from, I believe it was Jordan, the country of Jordan. Um, I believe like they were captured and probably held there for 10 years because um, they didn't believe them. They were, they were just like, we don't believe you. Uh, the crazy thing is, since they weren't believed, uh, they kept reporting like, you know, we we were this, this uh, he was like mid 40, I'll, I'll just say 45 because reports said it was just mid 40s. I didn't know ex- what exact age he was, but we'll just say 45. So he kept celebrating his birthdays like normal. Like the next year after he returned to England, he celebrated his 46th birthday, even though he would be 56 in the current timeline. He lived to the equivalent of, it was 120 years old. So even if you take the 10 years, he still would have been 110 when he finally passed. His son lived to be 103, and he was killed in an automobile accident. So yeah, creepy. Bum bum. So right now I'm going to read off a my first ad for the night. Actually, yeah, my first ad. And it's um, called CCC Entertainment. Um, they Well, they helped with my ad. I want to shout out to them. They're awesome. They're great people. Uh, you can check out their YouTube, uh, CCC Entertainment on YouTube. Um, they also do Around the Real podcasts on Spotify and Apple Podcasts called Around the Real, and they're fantastic people. Uh, it's a sh- show with celebrating the arts, and uh, it's a great show. I recommend it. CCC Entertainment, Around the Real podcast. They're amazing people. Go listen to them. So now my next story is a local horror story, um, and the reason I'm doing a local story t- tonight is for... Uh, for because this is a live show with all of you great people, and this is in the city of Tacoma. I wanted to do something local. So a local story that I've heard through the grapevine is about the laughing the the laughing skull horse of Gig Harbor. Gig Harbor, as many of you probably have been here since you're mostly all residents of Tacoma. Uh, is a, a peninsula, I believe, of it's moderately forested. It's not a huge city. It's a lot of land, a lot of woods. Back in 1904, a, na- a woman named Amanda Miller, um, she was traveling with her young son to meet the father, George Miller, George Miller was working, uh, he was a lumberer in the woods in Gig Harbor. Um, They were traveling by horse and carriage. So they were going through this small dirt trail, like, and the sun was starting to set. And as the sun was setting, they heard what was a hoof hoof clops or hoof noise hoof noise like of a horse galloping through a man all 
looked almost like a vagabond with shredded clothing was riding like frantically on his horse going through almost took out their horse uh their horse and their wagon um and he's terrified so they kept asking him they're like you know what's wrong what's going on hey, sir you almost sir you hit us what's what thou would be in such a rush the man said he saw this skeletal horse and a skeletal man riding through the the woods. Uh, being normal people, they kind of just was like poppycock. That's that's absurd. Um, he kept screaming like, you know, I'm not bullshitting you. Uh, there is this man. He's super dangerous and he has a scythe. He believes it to be death. Death himself running a skeletal horse because he has a scythe with him. So Amanda Miller and her son, Gregory, um, decide to like help the man. They're like, okay, we'll ride with us and we, we'll go to the lumber camp. So they stroll into this lumber camp and this man is still frantic. He keeps telling him that death is on its way and death is coming. But they believe him to be a religious zealot. They, they, they don't believe this guy. They think he might be some whacked out priest. Um, so they kind of just shrug it off like, you know, eh, go drink it off, drunky, or like, you know, oh, you, you and your crazy Bible thumping tales. It's death is coming. Uh, okay, it's the end of the world. Right. Because when death comes, it's the end of the world. Like, it's the one of the horsemen. That night, Amanda Miller um, was tucking her son Gregory in, and as he's like, "Good night, mommy," she's like, "Good night." They hear what this this horrendous evil laughter coming from the woods. This. <laughs> it almost sounds like a horse is laughing. So the, the men in this lumber, lumber camp come rushing, rushing over like to the gates because it's a wooden um, gate, like a round like, wooden wall, and they have these wooden gates. It's a lumber yard. So they rush to the gates thinking it's a, some guy on the other side. As they open the gates, the scythe comes flying from nowhere, and it slices the first guy's throat. Killing him almost instantly. You know, as his body falls, everyone starts panicking. Like, oh my god, someone's been attacked. Um, so then they decide to close the gate. And they keep hearing the clip-clop, 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 clip-clop. You know, it's, it sounds like this thing is this walking around outside. Then they hear that... <laughs> again, terrifyingly... Just this evil laughter. So then they see, like, the gates pressing. Like, it's like something's pushing these gates. And it's, and it's like this tremendous power just pushing these gates. So then they they uh, grab their, their muskets and any weapon that they can find. And then the door <laughs> breaks open. And this skeletal horse with flesh still on its bones. And this rider, who's 
eyes are empty. It's a skull with these empty eye sockets, but there's still flesh and tattered clothing hanging off the bones. Strolls through, all nonchalant, just like, this is my place and you're all going to die. So he walks in. All the rifles fire off. (laughs) Breaking pieces of bone and some tattered clothing comes flying off, but he just keeps coming, keeps coming. And he's, the horse is kicking people away as they rush with their, like, scythes and daggers. He slowly strolls up to Amanda Miller. She puts her hand out to try to, as she's terrified, she's screaming. He swings his scythe and just decimates her hand, almost cuts it completely off. She's on the ground screaming with this bloody, bleeding stump. And this thing comes (laughs) laughing. And then the father comes rushing in. He's got this big spike, this spear. He comes in, runs, and he just hits it in the back. And it just goes through all the ribcage and the tattered bones and severed sinew of the body. And it turns and it smashes it in half. And it's staring at him. And then it takes the spear, the spearhead out and stabs it into his shoulder. And as he's bleeding on the ground screaming, the skeletal horseman, this death, kicks in the door, grabs the little son of Amanda Miller. And Amanda's screaming and bleeding. And he starts... As he's holding this kid up by the, by the back of his shirt, the kid is screaming, you know, Mommy! Mommy, no! Help me! Help me! And it's walking towards the gate, and it slowly turns to Amanda Miller, and she's screaming, Take me! Take me! And it looks her deep in with its empty eye sockets. And it just starts going, <laughs> And then points to her, and then with the scythe, he raises it above his head, and he runs, sprints out of these gates. Amanda Miller lays there, and she slowly, slowly bled to death. As her husband had to watch her just die in his arms. Fast forward six months later. Him and 20 other men are hunting into into the Gig Harbor woods. They're searching for this skeletal horse. They've dubbed it the Laughing Skull Horse, the Laughing Skull Man. Basically, it's death. They're also trying to find his son, seeing if there's any even remains that they can at least bury and put to rest. As there's... It's crouching through the woods. They hear it. So they all quietly kneel down because they're trying to pinpoint where this maniacal monster is. The the lead of this expedition, uh, uh, Johan, sorry, I'm trying to read my notes here, Johan with a G, G O E I H A N, Johan Felipe, not American apparently, (laughs) 
who's the leader of this expedition, he's this big, burly man with a big beard. He tells everyone, like, let's go. Let's just rush them to these woods, flush them out. He's like, he'll, he'll come and try to attack someone. As he comes to attack, we'll flushes them out, and we can all gang up on him and take him down. Try to find, at least kill him, or find, or drive him out, or anything. Do anything. They'd rather die trying this than, and have answers and no answers at all. So as they rush in, they they hear that <laughs> call again, and it's louder. And then they hear the clip-clop, clip-clop of the trees and branches breaking as this massive skeletal horse emerges from the darkness. And on top of this skeletal horse is that laughing skeleton, the death, as they call it, the death rider of Gig Harbor. So, Jorihan, I'm not going to get that name right, (laughs) with this big, big axe, goes and he smashes the skull of the the horse, and it goes right into its soul. And his, his skull cracks in two, but it's still alive, still moving. How do you kill what's already looks like it's dead? So the father, Miller... He rushes in, and he jumps, and he tackles the skeleton rider off the horse. The skeleton rider, he's he's swinging his hammer. He's got this giant sledgehammer, and he's hitting him and smacking, breaking bones. Because he, in his mind, is piercing this thing. It's not going to work because he's already holy. He needs to smash it, break it, break it into powder. So he's smashing and smashing and smashing. Bones and pieces of clothing and sinew are falling off this thing. So what happens is the he, the writer, the death writer of Gig Harbor, swings his scythe, nicking the face of the father Miller. He's on the ground, and then he decides to sweep out the feet of this thing. So he sweeps out its feet. And it's on the ground, and he goes, raises his hammer to smash the skull into powder when he hears behind him, Father. He puts his hammer down, and he turns. He sees a rotting version of what's left of his son. He stares at this boy, and his eyes are gone. He sees the, the sockets and the, the bones around his eye sockets. His orbital bones are piercing through what's left of the flesh on his face. His upper lip is missing skin, so his front teeth are sticking out. But he still has skin on his bottom lip. Father, what are you doing? The man drops to his knees in tears as he sees his skeletal zombified version of what's left of his beautiful son. The boy walks past him, stares at the skeletal rider. Skeletal rider nods to him, and as they hold, embrace each other's hands, all the men are completely in shock and are stunned, staring in disbelief at what they're seeing. The skeletal rider lifts the boy, the zombified boy, up onto the skeletal horse. The rider gets on. 
The rider looks in the father Miller's eyes and with one last breath. <laughs> and as they ride off into the darkness, they've never were saw or seen again. Oh yeah, that's the uh, that's that's the skeletal rider of Gig Harbor. So if you're ever out driving in Gig Harbor at night, keep your eyes peeled. And I know Gig Harbor is only like a mile from here, so yeah, on your way home. Yay! <laughs> on that note, I just want to thank our sponsors. Um, thank the theater for having me. Um, well, thank all of you for having me and being here tonight. What an excellent show. Um, check me out on Spotify and uh, um, Apple Podcasts and the other podcasting show uh, um, broadcasters. This is the Black Sight Files signing out. Da-da-da-da.